Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are things? All right, thanks, Thea. How are you? Have you been reading anything? I'm okay, thank you. All, all as well. I'm actually experiencing a strange and almost unfamiliar feeling. You know, the one that you get before you go on a trip and you, you panic about which book or how many books um, mm. to take with you. So, how, I've, how many I've, have you got? Eight, well, I mean. Nine. <sighs> My entire bedside table is is made of books, so <laughs> it's just a teetering pile of, of books, vaguely supported by other books on the sides. Um, so among those are Jonathan Franzen's new one, um, because so many people have told me that I should. So that's one. It's massive, though, and it's hardback, so not ideal for, for travelling with um, budget airlines. I've got Stefania Auchi's... Um, don't know if you've heard of it. it was it's the Florio saga it was it's about this notorious Sicilian family who went from being poor nobodies to being the most uh well-known family in Italy and mm-hmm. it's a, an intergenerational saga so it was an international bestseller a few years back and I always sort of meant to see what all the fuss was about so I've only just sort of started to to, to do that now so I've just started the first of those um it's pretty easy reading um but there, I mean there are a bunch of others I just I don't I don't know. And they're all massive. I seem to just have amassed very large tomes. The but, thing um, to do on holiday, if you can, is read haiku. That's true. But also, it's only for I mean, five days. But that's it's the only thing for five days. And I'll be seeing family I haven't seen in 18 yeah, months. You're not so I should probably focus on them a little pages. bit. <laughs> Excuse me, I have the new friends and I'll see you later. <laughs> what are you reading, Lucy? Uh, well, I have just been rereading. But I think we're going to talk about this. I have just been rereading The Mirror and the Light. Oh, yes, of course you have. Okay. I have. <laughs> say no more, say no more. Okay. Carl 
coming up on this week's show, the final volume of Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell trilogy is on the stage. And Knowing What's Best for Baby, a recent book offers a cultural history of breast milk and the rise of the bottle. But first, Lucy, back to you because you're taking us across the channel. Yes, indeed, that's where we're going. When thoughts of lazy summer afternoons sipping pasties by the pool start to fade, the Paris literati traditionally brace themselves and plunge into the rentrée littéraire. This is the season when the French publishing world kicks back into life and sees publishers large and small issue a cornucopia of new titles in what amounts to a three-month-long nationwide book festival. Now, this is not my brilliant introduction. It's the opening of a fascinating and comprehensive piece about the rentrée by Russell Williams. And we are delighted that he's here today to talk us through the politics, the scandals, the big beasts and new voices of the whole shebang. Russell, many thanks for joining us. You're in Paris, I think. I am. Yes, I live and work over here. So I'm, I'm, I'm hiding in my daughter's bedroom at the moment, but she's out and about, <laughs> so it's fine. It's nice to hear that, that someone's in Paris, so basically everyone listening can feel a bit jealous of you. Well, yeah, but a gloomy afternoon is the same all over the world, but... Um... You say that, Russell, but you're in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure we let you get away with that. You say in your piece, after the lovely intro that I read out, that um, the rentrée is a uniquely French phenomenon, and how has it been this year, post-Covid? I think it's just about being back to normal, Lucy. Um, it's it, it's always a little bit overwhelming for somebody who's trying to get a get a steer on what's happening. You have um, approximately somewhere every year between five hundred and six hundred new titles that are published um, in the loose period between August and November. Um, last year was a little bit quieter what with bookshops uh, being closed due to the pandemic this year things have been a little bit more active there's been the kind of usual hustle and bustle and debate and writers on the tv and on radio kind of like it was kind of pre-2019 uh before things started to to slow down a little bit so um for all intents and purposes the french publishing world is back um probably slightly more quietly than it has been in recent years um because as you mentioned you know some of the some of the largest names some of the the big beasts of french literature i'm thinking of the um the emmanuel carrere i'm thinking of the uh, michel welbeck i'm thinking of virginie despont some of the big most interesting names they don't have anything new to put out so that's kind of cleared the air a little bit for for some of the more interesting names to to come through mm. and what is the um What's what, what's the theme or or who is the person that everyone is talking about this year if it's not the as we say those traditional um, big beasts? Yeah, that, that's interesting. It's it, it's a complicated situation. The, 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 La rentrée littéraire is always complicated, um, and it's you know it's impossible to get a hold on the thing as a, a, a as a totality. But one thing's kind of pretty clear: next year is French presidential election time. 
So the jockeying for positions, the debate has started already. Um, this week, it's uh, six months to go until the first round of elections. So campaign has kind of, you know, is starting quietly at the moment. And one of the big presences at the moment, and something that you really can't avoid um, in any aspect of the media, be it the literary press, through to whatever pages you're reading, it's the presence of Eric Zemmour. Now, mm -hmm. Zemmour is, um, he's been a, 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 a familiar face on French TV and in uh, the media for the last 10 years. Um, he's a firebrand right-wing political journalist. Um, also published uh, a couple of volumes of his uh, screeds slash political writings over, over the, last, uh, the last decade as well. He's just published a new book. It also looks like he is going to be standing for president, but he's delaying his announcement. And the cynics amongst us started off thinking that his rumoured uh, candidacy was, uh, was just a kind of a, a publicity stunt to get some oxygen for his volume. But it does look like he's going to stand. He's been having political meetings. He's been taken seriously as a candidate, even if he... Uh, even if he wasn't formally or isn't formally announced, but you know, he could be announcing at any moment. I think that's the general feeling at the moment. Marine so, Le Pen I, must be having kittens. This yeah, is, he's far right, isn't he? He's not. He's not just gently conservative. Oh, he's a he's a, he, he he's a far right thump tumper, absolutely. And and I think that is interesting, Thea, that he's scoring quite well in the opinion polls at the moment. And Le Pen is. Le Pen is getting worried. Uh, the, the, the issues such as immigration and Islam um, that, uh, that, that are the traditional or have become the traditional um, uh, area that the far right likes to speak about. That's been something that Eric Zemmour has been speaking about. So he's been beating Le Pen. He's just about you know, beating Le Pen in the opinion poll. So I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the political um, political calculations and the political manoeuvring. Will there be an eventual union between Le Pen and Zemmour? Who knows? Because I, I guess, you know, there's the feeling that, well, if, if Zemmour announces his candidacy, then that could split the far right vote and then Macron will just triumph home to an easy victory. Uh, it's too early to say. It's like a horse race, isn't it? <laughs> well, yes, the whole thing is. Well, and also you say, because Zemmour's got a book out, um, sort of on the on the themes that, that he's discussed before, and also you say in your piece, um, Nicolas Sarkozy's got a book out, though it's not, it's not about politics, is it? It's a sort of, what do you say? It's oh. a mushy memoir. Well, the shine knocked off it as well. Well, yeah, we're, we're into the kind of really strange world which uh, of French political books. Um, and the phenomenon isn't quite the same in the English-speaking world. But if you're a French politician of whatever level, you have to have published something to have the kind of cultural capital to be taken seriously on the political stage. Um, so this goes for kind of new upcoming ministers. Uh, where's the book? Um, Sarkozy, as, as a former president, you know, has, has newly discovered a kind of uh, uh, love of culture. Um, so he's written a book about museums and art and opera that I really don't want to read. Um, um, Anne Hidalgo, uh, the, the, the mayor of Paris, she's just published a, a book, uh, Une Femme uh, Française, um, which is kind of, you know, a, 
her kind of sharing her ideological position um, as she kind of prepares to uh, to stand for president as well. Um, so yeah, there's there's this kind of strange kind of murky uh, murky world, but the politics is in other places as well, rather than rather than just the politicians, of course. Yes, yes, I was gonna I was gonna move on to that actually, that, because as well as, as the sort of actual politics of people that may or may not be standing actual politicians, you say that that um, sort of social politics, gender and race and class are all very present, aren't they? Which I I think is still relatively new and that lots of writers are dealing with it not just those who we might be familiar with like Edouard Louis who have a specific story to tell it's, it's people who might have been writing in you know about other things but they're now taking into consideration I was thinking about you mentioned um, Tanguy Viel and his new book yeah but Viel's an interesting one he's um he's kind of been quietly gaining a, a reputation as a very very good writer over the last over the last 10 years or so he's he's published by edition de minuit which is of course known for their very stylish um lyrical um novels i i, I actually fell in love with with um Tongi's uh, VL's novels about about four or five years ago because i was reading a lot of crime fiction at the time and Tongi VL's novels are kind of very very stylish crime fiction, um, very, very stylish novels that kind of do something a little bit more interesting in the final third, kind of subvert the expectations and take it into kind of new, more, more lyrical um, areas. Biel is from uh, Brittany, um, so all of his novels are kind of set on some kind of windswept um, Finisterre coastline, there's always a, a corrupt local politician involved and there's always a kind of power struggle. They're quite uplifting actually uh, in that regard. There's always a little man or, or, or minor character who, who kind of, um, who, who wins out. But this novel, um, uh, La Fille Con Appel, which sort of translates as the girl you call, could also be translated ambiguously as, as call girl as well, is a story um, that kind of does just that, but with an added kind of um, post-Weinstein, post-Me Too, um, post um, kind of gender politics um, dimension to it for the first time in his work. So that's a kind of quiet, um, it, it, it kind of quietly emerges in that story, and for the first time in um, in VL's uh, novelistic career, really. Mm. And um, again, with the kind of um, the, the slightly less traditional, I suppose, um, writers or approaches. There's the you mentioned the writers picked out by um, Les Inrecutibles, which is that great. It's a great kind of rock and roll institution, isn't it? Once was about music, and now it's a very influential magazine about all kinds of culture, really. And they and they they pick up sort of young writers every year, don't they? And you say the ones they've picked out, they're all outside the traditional orbit of Parisian letters. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lisanne Rocket Tables. Um, I, I actually I actually kind of uh, cancelled my subscription about a year ago, but then every month since then I've, I've bought it, which kind of says something, uh, I think. <laughs> Can't do without um, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, but, but, but the one thing I really like about them is, is, is that they like to pronounce new movements in French writing. They like, they, they, they like to put their finger on an instance or, or a moment. Um, and they've done so this year and, and they've kind of highlighted four writers, all of whom are kind of writing from, from outside the, the kind of centrifugal, no, um, no, that's the wrong word. Um, highlighted. <laughs> yes, that's the word. Uh, they've highlighted from uh, four writers that are kind of out, outside the Parisian epicenter of, um, of, 
of writing, all of whom are kind of writing either in the banlieue, in the suburbs, or um, as in the case of uh, Kauta Archi, she's kind of writing from the context of, of the Strasbourg uh, banlieue. Um, so all of these kind of writers who, who are kind of challenging the, um, the notion of French literature as being something based around Paris, being something that is um, exclusively white and male and doing something a little bit more interesting than um, than all of the kind of big beasts of French literature have been doing for the last X many years. Yeah, I remember when uh, I used to go to Lyon um, to, to do a bit of work there. It was difficult enough to get anyone from the publishing houses or the agents even out of Paris. They would grumble about being in Lyon. And it's like, you know, that that's not very far away. It's not that it's not that different, really. Um, and yeah, that was that was certainly um it it it, it did feel like a bit like a club um in those days. Can you can you tell us about Kauta Archie? She's getting a lot of attention. Yeah, she has been out there. She, she's um she, she's a really interesting writer. She's kind of trained as a trained as a sociologist. So she's kind of coming at everything um from that perspective. And and her research has been on um, Algerian writing communities in Paris. So, so she knows how the system works. She's kind of studied the French publishing world from um, uh, with the eye of a scholar. But actually this time um, in uh, her publication, uh, Comme nous existons, uh, As We Exist or How We Exist, she's actually telling her own story. Um, and she's talking about what it meant for her to grow up as the child of uh, Moroccan immigrants um, who were living in a poor area on the outskirts of Strasbourg. And for her to kind of make the journey from the Strasbourg suburbs to a Catholic school where her parents thought that's where she'd get the best education, turns out she kind of got um, a certain amount of kind of patronizing treatment from, from the professors there, but then kind of making the, um, the, the journey to, uh, to university uh, and then eventually to Paris. So kind of moving from community to community. It's the, it's the kind of class and uh, transformation story that, that other French sociological writers such as uh, Didier Erebon, such as Edouard Louis, uh, who you mentioned, such as Annie Arnaud, have done so well. But Archie's kind of take is that she kind of argues that in her case, being the child of, of, of Moroccan immigrants, there's a racial dimension as well that she's kind of interested in in, in drawing a reader's attention to. So it's, uh, it's a very, very well-written, stylish and kind of provocative piece as well. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. And she's had a lot of magazine covers over the last couple of months, and rightly so, I think. She makes an interesting point about the nature of her writing, about what it's for. Can you tell us a little bit about this term, noble propaganda? Yeah, well, she's not afraid as you, as, of using literature for political purposes, in drawing attention to issues, in telling stories. And I think that's kind of why she's so keen to do media interviews. You know, she was happy to meet with me uh, for a Diet Coke uh, in a cafe um, and kind of talk about, you know, and, and talk about not only the novel, but talk about her place in, um, in La Rentrée Littéraire, because I think it's important that she is visible and identifies with, um, with, with the voice of her novel. novel. So it can't be uh, appropriated. It can't be lost. It can't be um, you know, it, it can't be taken away from her. So she's kind of, she likes to kind of um, control her media image in, in a way that's different, I think, from, from some other writers um, who might be a little more cynical about it. Mm. 
And how about books? I mean, you say there are the 500 odd. You, you, you don't have to have read them all. That wasn't the brief. <laughs> um, but how about the books outside the areas you mentioned? Uh, any kind of outliers or stuff that's a bit um, a bit more left field that, that, that took your fancy? Um, yeah, there's a there's a couple. Um, I, I wouldn't say that that, that Marie Dariusek is is necessarily an an outlying. Oh no, she's wonderful. Uh, writer. She is wonderful, but but she's written a kind of you know strangely idiosyncratic kind of book called Padomia, um, which is uh, or we could translate as you know not not sleeping. Um, but but I, I've kind of really enjoyed that. It's it's a collection of of reflections about about what it means to not sleep and what it means to be an insomniac. Um, which I think is kind of really quite endearing and, and honest and heartening and funny mm. in parts as well. She's fascinating, I think, not least because you it would be very difficult to predict what she's going to... If you'd said to me, OK, what's... You know, if you'd said last year, what's her next book going to be? I wouldn't have said it was a set of essays about not sleeping. I mean, you could... She does lots of different things, doesn't she? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, th th that's why, um, you know, I know the academic community has found Dariusek really, really interesting. Um, but she's kind of difficult to pin down, and and, and that's why she's such great fun. Um, Self-indulgently, I've quite enjoyed um, a, a, a memoir about French dance music, um, and 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 uh, particularly um, that there's a, an electronic music performer best known by 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 the name of Boom Bass, who was uh, used to perform in a band called Cassius, um, and he's written a memoir about his life inside Le French Touch. Which is the French electronic music scene of the of the uh, of the late nineties, um, which is uh, which is good for a you know a, a non clubbing middle aged man like myself to kind of read <laughs> vicariously and imagine I was still seventeen. Um, but that that was quite great fun, I think, uh, and I've enjoyed that as well. But that's, that's not going to win any awards, I don't think. But well, um, that's all right. It's not all about awards, actually. Since yeah. you since you say awards, you 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 said in the piece, oh, there's usually some sort of scandal at some point, and then sure enough, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> what about the Goncourt? What about the Goncourt? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I thought we'd get away relatively unscathed this year because, you know, there's no Welbeck to say something stupid. There's no kind of big, you know, big issues on the horizons. But what do I know, really? Um, it was all looking quite calm. And then the Goncourt committee published, as they do, their long list for the award. And a few people kind of kind of started pointing their fingers and coughing politely because they noticed what I didn't note uh, at the time, which was Francois Noodleman, um, not necessarily a household name, um, but he was on the list um, for his latest novel. What people drew attention to was the fact that his partner, um, Camille Laurence, um, is uh, one of the judges this year, and there were brief kind of rumours and, um, and even louder coughs about conflict of interest. Then it transpired that Laurence had actually published a, a scathing uh, literary takedown, and it's quite something to read, um, of uh, Anne Berest, who is a fellow long-listed uh, writer for the Goncourt. So, you know... Yeah, if you were going to say that the Parisian literary world was... Yeah, I don't know what's the word, quite a closed shop. Even that, that really did make people. I mean, as you, as you say, you say, oh, well, I didn't know that. But how could you know that? Because you'd have to be an insider to know 
that, that the guy on the long list is actually the partner of one of the judges. I am outraged, Lucy, at the suggestion that I am not uh, a French literary insider. That is outrageous. <laughs> By definition, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, it was true. I, How I, I, could I'm we somewhat... ever be? <laughs> I read the, um, the critique that she did in Le Monde of the Anne Bellis, and it really is. It's not just a kind of, oh, could do better. It's actually, you're right, it's very scathing. And it's quite unusual because I find that the French, you know, that the reviews, they don't often do really harsh, especially Le Monde. I think they usually will find something, you know, they will, they, they will be polite and, and find interesting things about it. But this is a real, she really puts the boot in, doesn't she? She does, and it's, and, it, and it's great fun to read uh, if you're not Anne Berest, I'm yes. sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> And and arguably, um, you know, like the, the 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 committee needed to do something about this. You know, they, this was such a, an extreme kind of literary smackdown. Um, so they, they 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 had a hasty meeting, or but they were gathering anyway to uh, to discuss the shortlist, and they changed the rules. They changed the rules saying that close partners or close family members of Goncourt jury. Uh, members were not eligible for the Goncourt, and they also said they also said that um, that those serving on the committee, serving on the jury, were not allowed to do <laughs> extreme literary smackdowns of the fellow nominated books. Um, so this is kind of kind of a, a reprimand you'd have thought for Laurence, um, but we'll see whether she um, whether she continues um, as a jurist uh, for the Goncourt. It's just also you would just think it's just you would have thought that would be a given that you're not allowed to have your partner on the long list of a competition. I read what the, the head of the judges said when he was first tasked with it. And he kind of seemed to say, well, some people didn't know that she was going out with him and we didn't want that to get in the way of a good book. So, you know, we thought it was fine. I mean, is that right? He did basically say that, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I, I'm just trying to think of a great kind of precedent in the uh, in the English language world. You know, you, you you just couldn't imagine the situation ever arising. Not not that our you know prizes are completely beyond reproach, I suppose. But that one really does seem. You would have thought the rule of not having a close family member, you can't nominate the book of, of a family member. You'd have thought that would be a bit of a given. But hey, I mean, as you say, what what do I know? Yeah, <laughs> no, but there is something great about the Goncourt. You know, you contrast it with the Booker in the UK, and you think about the big glitzy ceremony in Paris. The Goncourt committee meet above a restaurant, and there's no glitzy ceremonies, and there's a kind of hastily cobbled together press conference rather than the the glitz and the glamour and the drama. And it's kind of really fascinating to see how how, how it does seem slightly shambolic, and that's part of the appeal, I think. Mm. And after the this this big rentrée, as it were, um, after uh, after this is finished, the next point of of sort of publishing hoo ha will be Welbeck's new novel, won't it, in January? Oh, I think so. There's no official announcement from Flammarion, his publishers, yet, but I've heard whispers. Um, if we can just keep it between us, um, that there <laughs> might be there might be a new Welbeck um, for January, but then. Next year is, of course, presidential elections year. And whatever Welbeck publishes, it's going to be read as an intervention in the debate. I've, I've written a bit about Welbeck over the past few years, and I dare say that my Christmas is going to be ruined by having to read his new 400-pager. Ruined um, or perhaps wonderfully embellished. Maybe he'll just say, isn't everything brilliant? Can you imagine? Seems you rather imagine? likely. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it would be very good timing, wouldn't it? If, if let's say you were a provocateur, it would be very good timing 
to publish in January, especially if it is if it does have politics and social, you know, the sort of state of affairs, which it probably will, that will be very good timing because that's what, like a couple of months before the first round. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he could even come out late, declare his presidency and be a shoo-in for the Elysee. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. <laughs> You'd find yeah. that so much less fun, I think, than, than writing from the sidelines. I, I, yeah, I'm not sure he finds anything a great deal, a, a great deal <laughs> of fun, true. to this be honest. Yeah. I think he likes smoking. I think he quite likes smoking. <laughs> yeah. well, and the boozing, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you what, if that happens, Russell, you must immediately come back on and we will discuss it at great length. <laughs> you will be the first people I call, absolutely. <laughs> Russell Williams, many thanks for talking to us today. Thanks a lot. Still to come on the show, the perils of mercenary milk, the pressures of breastfeeding and the poor voiceless wet nurse and the mirror and the light adapted for the stage. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we venture into the murky world of human versus augmented cow's milk, let's stop off at the Gielgud Theatre in London because you've been there yourself recently, Lucy. I have because I was lucky enough to go and see the first night of The Mirror and the Light, which is the third of the um, Thomas Cromwell trilogy by Hilary Mantel. And this was it, brought to the stage, as it were. A very um, hot ticket. 
it was a real treat. And can I just say, I feel bad about this. I felt bad about this when I was talking about it at work. I did not commission myself. <laughs> I did not see the ticket and go, oh, I know who can do that. I was asking someone else because I didn't know who to send. And I think he won't mind if I say this. It was Toby of, of uh, who comes on very often, Toby Lishtig. And I had read it when we got it in for an extract. I had read it as fast as I could to find an extract. Um, and Toby said, well, you, you're a big fan. You've read it. You know it. Why don't you go? And so you relished the opportunity to return to it with a, with a slightly, well, I was going to say actually with less of a deadline, but you had quite a tight deadline on this one. Yes, just as much of a deadline, but but it was just it was an enormous pleasure. And I have to say, I hadn't seen the other two stage adaptations, so I really was thinking, well, how how do they do it? You know, because so much of the of all the books is the voice mm. that that narrative voice, you know, in the present. That the first time you 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 read it, you remember the first time everybody read Wolf Hall, they were like, oh, it's mm-hmm. in this funny thing. I, you know, it's a, it's it's all in the present and it's a bit weird, and then suddenly it's completely unthinkable to think of it any other way and there are many imitators um and so what they had to do was externalize it you know, put it in action and into emotion and into um you know drama so it becomes much more about sort of big scenes you know rather than that continuous narrative and this one is different to the, the previous two in that it's it's it was co-written by um by ben miles who plays cromwell is that right yeah, it was. It was co-adapted by him. Yeah. So obviously he had, I think he read the audio books as well. So he's completely steeped mm. in it. And yeah, he, he adapted it with her. Um, and and some of the adaptation is brilliant because some of, some of it you, uh, or some of the bits that I could recognise, sometimes the words are put into someone else's mouth or a ghost might say what someone was thinking, you know, that kind of thing that that, that translates across, but they had to lose a lot. I mean, as the mirror and the light is, did you say it was 900 pages long, you know, <laughs> and the play is about two and a half hours. So they had to lose a lot of stuff, but it's a different thing. It's not the same thing. They're not trying to put the whole book on stage though. As I said, um, the, um, my companion and me as well said, I would have sat through the whole thing for seven hours. <laughs> I'd have been absolutely fine to, to see it, you know, and see what they ate. And all the quibbles about the the, the um, translation of the Bible. I mean, more than quibbles because lives were at stake. But there's mm. quite a lot of matter about it. You know, mm. and you learn about the the leopards and the marmoset and the spaniels and what everyone's wearing. And you know, and also the other thing the book has is these great panoramas of of sort of England and the times, and and they go back as well into history, which I don't think the other two books have. Mm. You say for a story about power and impotence, justice and revenge, trust and the lack of it, there is, you say, a surprising number of jokes. Yeah. I mean, and some of them actual jokes that are in the book, which I remember, like almost that you would have a badoom tish at the end of it. (laughs) And some of them kind of leaning into character jokes. And I was a bit surprised by that in the the beginning. Um, But I can see the sense of it because you have to, you have to find a way in. There's a lot of history to get past, and you've got to you've got to work out who people are as well pretty mm. quickly. Um, and so, if you if you delineate <laughs> them quite strongly, and especially with a bit of humour, uh, I I think that helps to find a way in. 
So I like, the- I like the idea of, um, you, you mentioned, I can't quite remember now, one of the characters, his entrance being accompanied by a, a thunderclap oh, uh, at one stage. It, it's so brilliant. It's Stephen Gardner, Bishop Stephen Gardner. He's such a baddie. He's brilliant. And he's very tall and he's dressed all in black and he's got this great big coat, which makes him look even bigger. But in, and in the book, you just, you can't bear him. And at the end, I said, I said, so I said to, to my companion, you know, we were clapping them at the end and everybody was cheering and roaring. And I was saying, I want to boo him. I, feel like <laughs> I really wanted to boo him because he was doing it dressed as Gardner. He plays two people, that actor. Right. One of them is quite, you quite like and is quite good fun. And one of them is Gardner and he's dressed as Gardner. I really wanted to boo him. Imagine how awful that would have been. <laughs> Yes, everybody. That's that. That's the TLS's art. So just there in the fourth row. <laughs> He's such a baddie. Um, but the, the two main it revolves around Cromwell and Henry, and so that was Ben Miles and Nathaniel Parker, and they were brilliant, actually. Right. They really, right. Were, they really, they really held the weight of it. Well, it sounds like a lovely evening out. Now, uh, this isn't going to do anything to dissuade anyone who thinks that we keep all the good gigs for ourselves. But um, our own Michael Keynes has been to the theatre too uh, this week to see the Young Vic's Hamlet. What did he make of that? Well, it was quite, a, can I say that also he didn't bag the ticket for himself. I asked him, <laughs> I said, please, Michael, will you do this? You'll be the right person, which indeed, of course, he was. It's Cush Jumbo as Hamlet. And uh, he thought she was brilliant. He calls her magnificent and impressive and in- intriguing. Um, the production is quite spare, I think. I mean, not just in terms of cuts, though. I think there are quite a lot of cuts. Um but it's quite spare and I, I think it, it it felt as though it was, um, I think he says at one point, he felt slightly as though it was in a vacuum. Mm, he says Elsinore um, feels sort of cut off from the geopolitics, uh, well, that are so much a part of the story. Yes, yeah, it's, um, and it, it's the, 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 the director says, I think in the in the programme notes, Elsinore world, mm. and, and that's that's what you get. Mm. You, know, you don't get so much of a, a sense of the context, but he says within that there are some uh, there's some there's some very good bits, often just involving two or three of the actors. Um, and as I say, he's very very complimentary about Kush Jumbo, um, and she's uh, she's apparently top notch and a, a very very uh, risky liberty taken with uh, to be or not to be. I think we should leave that there as a as a, a cliffhanger. Um, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, you have to go along. You have to, go <laughs> to find out what happens yes. to that most famous part of the soliloquy, yeah, you will exactly. have to go and seek out the review. Yeah. Okay, well, now let's turn to a review of White Blood, A History of Human Milk by Lawrence Trevelyan Weaver, reviewed this week by Michelle Pridmore-Brown, a research fellow at the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. Pridmore Brown observes that maternal breastfeeding seems to have gone in and out of fashion, somewhat like pointy shoes. And following Weaver's lead, she takes us through centuries of social, cultural, scientific and political twists and turns to track how and why human milk has been valued and devalued. She joins us on the line from California now to tell us more. Hello, Michelle. Hello there. Extra points to you, I think, for doing this so early in your morning. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Now, you set the scene by taking us back to the mid-18th century, so I'd like to ask you to do that for us now. And here, London is representative of the broader British situation for infants. Yes. So not just in London, but actually in the industrialising towns of Europe in general, um, there was a, a line of physicians that would rail against the complacency um, 
and the fads, as they called them, and fashions that would that would lead women to rely on cow's milk um, to feed their young. This milk was was generally purchased from the from the corner store, the the local cowkeeper. Um, who kept both his cows and the milk in very unsanitary conditions and was basically just absolutely filthy. So there was one physician in particular, a guy called um, Hugh Smith, who railed against this and would say to people, you know, just open your eyes and see what's going on. It's, it's so obvious that this is the cause of you know, London's and other towns, you know, awful mortality rates. Um, and they really were awful. For instance, in one parish, St. Giles, in one workhouse, 18 of 187 children survived at, by age three. I mean, the death rate was atrocious. So he said, you know, come on, look, look, it's, 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 it's you know, children fed on cow's milk do horribly compared to uh, children who are breastfed. But the, you know, habit being what it was, uh, you know, most people didn't pay much attention. And the thing about, about babies that are fed cow's milk is they get indigestion, they get colic, which of course drives the poor mothers crazy. What did the poor mothers do? They feed their babies what's called mother's quietness or mother's kindness. Well, what is that? That is gin. This is poured down the baby's throat and you can imagine what follows. Mm. Problem, con compounding problem. You describe it as a, as a habit, um, this reliance on what was called mercenary mercenary milk, wasn't it? How, how did this come about? I mean, was it just a matter of convenience? Because you can't help but note that obviously cow's milk costs money, while the mother's breast milk would have would have been free. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's convenience. And it's, you know, seeing what your neighbors are doing. If everybody's feeding their, their children's cow's milk, you just, you don't think twice about it. But you're right, it, it would have cost. But, you know, mothers were often occupied elsewhere. Mm. Was it also because, precisely in a way, because it was free, that that is what very poor people did? Trouble is, because of the conditions that they would have been kept in, the numbers would be more difficult to track, wouldn't they? I mean, because they might have ill health anyway. Right. Well, so that's, that's an interesting point, too, because if you went into the country, for instance, or if you looked at the rural poor, you know, they, of course, were still breastfeeding their babies. And then so the mortality rates were, were, were you know, much, much, much lower. And that's also what somebody like Hugh Smith would say, is to say, look at babies fed in the country and how much better they're doing. Mm, so but, it's very much a function of, of the industrialization, as you mentioned, because these, the women were working. And so for the most part, they would have been you know, in mills or, or factories of other sorts. And so breastfeeding wouldn't have been an option, hence the reliance on, uh, on, on bought milk of, of very dubious Provenance. I mean, there's an interesting there's, there's an interesting comparison to be made with with France um, and perhaps with Paris specifically. Yes. So in Paris, it was much more likely that you would use uh, a wet nurse, and even if you were poor. But observers would note that wet nurses were kept much as cows were in London, in these dank sheds, and then the wet nurses would be responsible for four or five babies apiece, and so. Again, the incentive for the wet nurses was to supplement and, you know, obviously the babies weren't being nourished, you know, appropriately. So mortality rates were, weren't much better in Paris than in London. And as you point out, the, the, the real casualties of the wet nurse system were, were likely to be the wet nurse's own children, who probably, again, would have, would have been reliant on, on other sources or certainly disadvantaged. Absolutely. This 
pretty dire situation went on well beyond the century's end. Uh, it wasn't until 1863, a very specific date, uh, that things started to change. So what happened in, in 1863? So that's where it gets really, really interesting. And the point is that, that you know, everyday observation was not enough to, to rectify the situation. And it really took not just mortality tables, but it took an instrument of the enlightenment, the, the, the scale, the infant balance to actually completely change things. And um, it was first deployed in Paris, thanks to a graduate student who thought to weigh babies. And, and it's hard to imagine that such an act could be so revolutionary. But what that showed was that babies fed on cow's milk or even from a wet nurse were basically starving to death. They weren't gaining weight compared to babies that were breastfed. And it's sort of like Lord Kelvin said, you know, to really understand something, you have to be able to measure it. So the infant scale, you know, it, it showed what was hidden in plain sight, which is that the quality of the milk matters. You can't feed, you know, the cow's milk is, is made for calves. It's, it's made to, you know, make them grow a thousand pounds in a year. It's not made for human babies. So it wasn't just a question of the scale, but also of what it made possible, which was growth charts. And the growth charts, what that did was to create these norms against, against which um, babies could be judged and categorized. And then as, as part of this, um, I mean, this was really the, the, the moment at which breast milk sort of started to be in the ascendant, wasn't it? And then through the 19th century, for a while at yeah. least, it, it continued. Yeah. So you, you describe it as becoming a, a solution to a rag bag of ills. Yes. As this became part of the popular consciousness, milk became the solution to just about everything. Um, so moralists, politicians, a growing pediatrics profession saw milk as the solution to not only these sky-high infant mortality rates, but to maldeveloped children, you know, puny children, but also there was this recognition of the downstream effects of um, poor nutrition, and that was puny soldiers or unfit conscripts, as well as, you know, uh, the French, for instance, were really worried about depopulation. And so, of course, it played into that. You know, there were, there were the wars between the French and the Germans, and the French were really worried about the fact that they thought, you know, physically they weren't as fit as the Germans. And so milk was the solution. It's interesting, um, this, this, this French case, because in this way and in others that you delineate in your piece, the issue of breastfeeding very quickly becomes a, a political one, a patriotic one. Yes. Yeah, so if you if you want to do the right thing for your country, then you ought to breastfeed your child. And then you have a pediatrics profession that that is mobilized to supervise this act of feeding the infants of the country. And it's the pediatric profession that the author, Lawrence Trevelyan Weaver, uh, approaches from that angle there. So, so can you tell us what he brings to this, this book because of that specialism and that, that background? So he's a pediatrician and he's retired now, but he specialized in nutrition and digestion, the, the digestion of infants. He's also a historian of medicine at the University of Glasgow. So in this book, what he's doing is he's bringing together lots and lots of sources, mostly English and French, a little bit of German, um, a tiny bit of Russian, Italian, and also um, tons of images, wonderful images, and sort of juxtaposing them, creating a history of how people thought about milk um, through the centuries, starting with the Greeks. 
the interesting part of the book or the book where he really gets into the weeds is this late 19th century turning point where took off in France, then spread across Europe, this idea that you, know, you could actually do something about mortality rates. You could actually do something about the maldevelopment of, of children. It's interesting to me how the, the it seems to me that whichever whichever way the tide was turning, whether it was you feed them on cow's milk because that's what everyone does, or you breastfeed them because that's patriotic, it's the woman who kind of bears the brunt of sort of blame and responsibility, isn't it? So either she's doing it wrong because she's giving them cow's milk and it's dirty and they're poorly, or she's doing it wrong because um, she should breastfeed more and she should be more patriotic. And why isn't everything perfect? Because she's breastfeeding. It's it's it seems almost impossible even now for it to be a, a, an uncharged subject. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's kind of what's missing from Weaver's text is the woman seems a little bit disembodied. I mean, she's an apparatus for, for, for feeding the child, but she's, uh, you know, her interests are, are never foregrounded in this book. I mean, it, you know, in Weaver's defense, it's really just about, you know, he's focusing on the milk itself. And, and he's, his perspective is that of, in a sense, that of the child and the child's digestion. And clearly in his own practice, he must have seen so many babies with colic who, at least he believes, wouldn't have suffered so much if their mothers had breastfed them. Yeah, but as you say, even if you're just interested in the milk, um, <laughs> yes. the, the woman has to, to eat yes. reasonably right and get enough rest. If you don't eat and you don't sleep or, you know, or you're running around yes. the place, that changes the that's, quality. That's what's absent here, yes. Um, you, you know, you definitely hit right on it. That's, that, that was, that's my problem with the book in a you know fascinating fascinating overview but yes her perspective is missing you know there are people across the centuries who have said that you know if a mother breastfeeds too many children if she you know whether it's at one time or sequentially she does get depleted and her nutrition goes to the child not to her you know no matter how badly nourished she is she seems to be able to feed the child adequately, but that's clearly at her expense. For instance, Weaver quotes at length um, the Greek physician Seranos of um, the uh, second century, and he has all these things to say about how you choose an, a wet nurse and such, and he counsels women who have means to hire a wet nurse because he says, you know, if you feed your own baby, you're going to get wrinkled prematurely. You're going to get <laughs> depleted prematurely. So, you know, pass it on to the wet nurse. <laughs> Again, you have to wonder who, who you know, being wrinkled prematurely, who, who that would be an issue for. <laughs> <laughs> Weaver doesn't quote Serranus on that. He chooses to quote him rather regarding how to choose a wet nurse. Mm. You mentioned some wonderful illustrations, and that's a way in which the woman is at least you know, put back into the frame in a sense, and we get a real cultural understanding of of of, of breastfeeding or not as this this symbol, uh, you know, of status, uh, as, as we've touched on uh, already. Could you maybe give us one of these images because you you have a couple of fantastic descriptions. There's a couple that stand out. 
He includes illustrations, for instance, of um, what's called the Madonna del Latte, mostly by French um, painters. And they're of the 14th, 15th century, featured as this cornucopia. Um, her breast is featured like an apple that feeds a very plump Jesus. And that would have been, you know, during times of plague and scarcity. That, so that must have been a super you know, comforting image. Um, the other image that really stands out in my mind was of Diane de Poitiers. So she was the mistress of Henry II, um, an incredibly trendy um, person um, who set the fashions. And in this painting, she is um, taking, taking a bath and her breasts are bared and they're very small and fit, you know, and firm and you know, they're, they're breasts that are fit for a king, so to speak, and not for a child. And so in the background, you have a wet nurse who's plump and who's, who's feeding her child. And, you know, the message is very clear that, you know, if you're at all hip, this is what you should aspire to. Mm. And as we, as we said, as, as Lucy said earlier, that, that that's, you know, changed and has almost really been flipped on its head now where the, the pressure is is that it is that you should be breastfeeding and if you're not you're somehow failing and, and that is seen as the more high status position is is you know um i think it's um Emily, oh, yeah, it's totally um, Osler, who, who who says the economist who says that really it's a it's a matter of demographics and it's 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 the wealthiest who now uh, have have uh yes, are able to a... make the choice to breastfeed yes Exactly. Yes. So Weaver wants to, to claim that breastfeeding remains the holy grail, that if you really want to do the right thing for your for your baby, you will breastfeed for six months. And that he contends that there's all these downstream benefits, you know, many of which we probably don't even we can't even identify yet. But he says, you know, for cognition, for allergies, for you name it, breast is best. But there's been this string of people like Emily Oster who have said, wait a second, is, is this really the case? Does that, the data we have really show that, that um, breast is that much better? Maybe, you know, maybe at the margins, but really? And they say no, because the problem is that breastfed babies are usually the, the children, you know, the babies of the privileged, and it's the poor that are using formula. So you can't really make the comparison. It's interesting um, too that this shift seems to have come by way of of the Puritans, doesn't it? And you can't help but draw a connection between this kind of new thing and and, and clean eating and, and that whole movement. Oh, that's a really good point. That when say Tudor and Stuart ladies were um, using wet nurses, the Puritans said, "Well, you know, I'm going to breastfeed." It became a sort of niche um, virtue signaling to say, "I'm going to, I'm actually not going to use borrowed milk. I'm going to use my own milk." that makes me morally superior. So yeah, it's kind of a return. It's kind of like that, that ethos now. And I mean, I, Emily Oster is right that the data is not really there to show that it's breastfeeding is that much, that much better. We, we really don't know. And so that leaves the room for politics and preferences. And, you know, in this case, Weaver is very sure of his own, which is that breastfeeding is what you ought to do. 
I'm struck by one uh, detail that you you mentioned from Weaver's book, where he um, he describes a tombstone of one Puritan woman, Elizabeth Brand, the wife of a squire, whose whose tombstone from 1636 proudly states that her twelve children were all nursed with her unborrowed milk. It's just so very loaded. Yes, yes. Rousseau too, um, you know, created a cult around motherhood and the idea that you should breastfeed. And again, he was able to do that against the backdrop of the custom being not to breastfeed, but like, for instance, in Paris, the custom was during his time to send your babies out to the country for breastfeeding, which is why Paris at one time was known as the city without babies. This is a subject that we could unpack for hours and hours, both the history of it and and, and the present situation. But I suppose no account of, of uh, breast milk versus formula would be complete without the great uh, Nestle scandal. Um, oh, I'm just gosh, wondering yes. what, what Weaver brings to this story. How does he tackle it? Because it's so well known and again, uh, you know, so, so loaded. Yeah. Um, so he was part of the World Health Organization around the turn of this century. Um, and so, as you can imagine, he has very, very strong opinions about that. When Nestle started shipping out its, its formula to um, the developing world in the late 19th century, as is well known, it, it decimated um, the infant population in these countries because there wasn't clean water to add to the formula. Um, and the tragedy, of course, was that it increased the mortality rates, but it also probably compromised the survivors who were fed on this milk, which was contaminated. Um, and it also attenuated the customs around breastfeeding. So you could say in that sense, it also affected future generations. So he speaks of the murder of the innocents. And he estimates that even today, a million, a million and a half babies could be saved if um, women in the developing countries actually return to breastfeeding as opposed to using formula, especially in hot climates where um, the milk is going to get contaminated. You can absolutely understand then why he feels so strongly about it, can't you really? If he, if he was part of a, the World Health Organization group that, that saw this happening, and sees that it's still happening, you could see that you would be absolutely full of fervor to try and stop it. Because presumably people are spending money because they think that's the best thing for the babies. They're spending money on the formula that they could just use for yeah. food to, yeah. to, to, be, to yeah. be well fed and then to, yeah. to, to feed yeah. the baby that way. Yeah, and as he, he, he spends a little bit of time talking about the marketing campaigns to tout the, the formula, and they were such clever campaigns. You know, they made it seem so, you know, scientific. This is the wave of the future, and why would you not want to, to do this? Well, as I said, there's clearly plenty more to say on the topic. Um, I don't think this is in any way settled. Michelle Pridmore-Brown, thank you so much for joining us today. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Russell Williams and Michelle Pridmore-Brown. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.